Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. We have been sort of working our way through uh, Nehemiah, which is about halfway through the Old Testament, but in terms of chronology, it actually comes right towards the end of what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, But the Bible is not put together in chronological order, just to make it that little bit more interesting to read uh, for us. So uh, what we are seeing in the book of Nehemiah is the people of God who have been scattered all over the place. They've been in exile for around about 70 years. And Jerusalem has actually been a bit of a ghost town the whole of that time. But they are now coming back to their land, to their city. They've been rebuilding the temple. And we see Nehemiah uh, leading the charge and rebuilding the city wall. So uh, verses one to about seven, we see this activity of uh, rebuilding the wall. And the reason they had to do that is because they are vulnerable to attack uh, back in the day. If you didn't have a strong city wall, your city was uh, vulnerable. And as they'd rebuilt the temple, there's now something really precious uh, that could be plundered. So uh, that's what we're seeing Nehemiah. Nehemiah lead the charge in. So up to verse uh, to chapter 7, they're rebuilding the wall. After chapter 7, we see this pivot start to happen where it is more about rebuilding the people. And so we are going to explore some of that together. Uh, and, I, and I've called this a roadmap to revival. It's this movement that we sort of see happening as the people are returning and coming back from exile and what God does amongst them as they become a people again, because they've been scattered far and wide. We see them returning, rebuilding, repenting, and reviving. In chapter 6, we see them actually finish the rebuild project. The wall is finished. There's this, you know, woohoo moment because it is quite something. Like it is a massive feat. And it's mostly been done by, do you remember me a few weeks ago? The pleasure of doing uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, that list of all the builders who weren't actually builders. These were just regular people rolling their sleeves up, getting stuck in and, uh, and being part of the project. So you can imagine the delight, the joy that there was as they finished this rebuild. In chapter 7, Nehemiah lists the names of the people that are coming back. He wants to keep track of the genealogy of all of these ones that have been scattered uh, during the exile who are now returning home. Chapter 8, this is where Ezra, the priest, calls all the people together and over a seven-day period of time, he starts reading them scripture. Now, for some of them, that may have been a new experience because remember, these are people who have been scattered far and wide. This is maybe the first time that they've been able to come together, you know, some of those younger generations, and hear the word of the Lord that was given to Moses for their people. It's the significant moment. So Ezra gathers them together, and for six hours a day, for seven days, he reads them the word of God from the Torah, which is the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. So if you're sitting here for about a half an hour, you're doing well. They had six hours a day and they were standing as they listened. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, it's desert type climate there. And it was probably in October. So for them, that's heading into uh, autumn. 
And as they stood and they listened to Ezra tell them their story, tell them their history, there were priests and Levites who were a group of people who served in the temple, moving among them, explaining to them what it was that they were hearing. And it's a pivotal moment in their history because from that point onwards, Israel was going to be known as the people of the book. The book that God had given them, the book that God has given us. And as they listened to the law of the Lord, they became deeply distressed. They were heartbroken. They began to mourn and to weep. And the reason for that, we're told in chapter 9, is that they were confronted with the reality of their story, the reality of their history. You see, the people of Israel, even though they were God's chosen people, don't actually have a great track record of following him. They would have these moments of passion and and commitment and they would kind of be all in. And then over time, they would be distracted by culture. They would be absorbed by, you know, uh, just their lives. They would have different rulers come in and not always lead them in the ways of God. And so their hearts would drift. Does anyone relate to that? I'm like, well, I wish I could say I was better, but I'm really not. And so as they are listening to the story of their people, where this has happened time and time and time again, they are confronted with the reality of their own sin, their rebellion, the sin of their leaders, the sin of their forefathers and mothers, the sin of their nation, how inconsistent they have actually been as the people of God in following his ways. That happens sometimes for us, hey? When we have those moments of sort of honesty and clarity of realizing, oh my gosh, I have fallen so far away from where I would want to be. And at the same time Ezra's telling them this, he's also reminding them of the faithfulness and the goodness of God, his mercy, his enduring patience with them. So why don't we read some of those words ourselves, Nehemiah 9, 16 to 21. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they pay anybody? (laughs) Seems to be a human thing. They were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles that you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, he's referring back to when the people were, uh, the people of Israel were enslaved. They worked as slaves. Well, they worked. They weren't paid. They were slaves for, for over 400 years in Egypt until God raised up a leader who took them and freed them from captivity. And yet, they forgot that this is what he had done. And we're going to go back. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. Even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. How quickly they forgot that it was the God who made heaven and earth that led them out. They made themselves an idol instead. They committed terrible blasphemies. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness because they ended up out in the desert 
And so God led them. A pillar of cloud still led them forward by day and a pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them and you did not stop giving them manna, which was the food he provided every day, from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. He's holding up this picture of the faithlessness of the people and the faithfulness of God. Verse 33 sums it all up, really. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Facing that reality head on led to this spontaneous and unplanned time of revival. For them, marked by confession, by repentance, by weeping, they were grief stricken as they considered the reality of their actual story. And those are some of the characteristics we see of revivals that have happened throughout the history of the church. Moments of confession, of, of that kind of being confronted with the reality of our own brokenness and our own disordered desires that come from sin at work in our lives. We're no different from the people of Israel as we find them here in Nehemiah. There are notes for us on our own road to revival and some of the characteristics that we see through history as God meets with his people in sovereign and life-changing ways. Our revival is gonna likely include some, of the, some similar elements to what we've just read. That we have these moments where through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become aware, we remember the reality of who we are. Probably we could use words like proud and stubborn and rebellious at times. But there's this actually wonderful invitation in that moment to be able to just be honest. Do you know, you know that power of when you're with a good friend and they know you, we actually just had friends for dinner last night and um, we've known each other for over 35, nearly 40 years. And, um, and just, we were talking about how we, we've been through a lot together over those times and we haven't always been at our best. We've seen each other at our worst at times. But there's this freedom that comes from knowing that, that I actually can be that truthful that honest, and that they're going to choose to love and forgive me anyway. And that actually knits our hearts closer together. That's what God can do. And the beautiful thing in chapter 8, verse 10, even in the midst of their weeping and wailing and their heartbreak, the priests and, and Nehemiah say to them, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How is it that on the one hand, we can look at the reality of really who it is that I am, the bits of my personality or my, the way that I am in the world, where I'm confronted with my own brokenness and, and the mess that I can make of things at times, my selfishness, my pride, my, you know, all judgmentalism, all that, whatever it is, we've all got versions of that, right? And yet we can still have hope. And joy can be our strength because the next thing that we can do is remember who God is. This God who is faithful, this God who is forgiving and merciful and slow to anger, who is incredibly patient. I don't know about you, but I am extremely grateful that he is because he's had to be with me. He loves us. He is steadfast. He is solid. 
And this is the God who is inviting us into relationship with Him. This is the God who is inviting us to do life with Him. His way, it kind of invites us into this place of worship and of surrender, of making Him central. And that leads us to recommitting our lives to Him. Or for some of us, possibly committing for the very first time to obedience to God. Now, I don't know about you, but words like commitment and obedience... How does that feel? Comfy? Or slightly, oh, sends a shiver down your spine. I mean, we probably live in the most commitment-phobic era ever, I think. You know, like, we are so reluctant to commit to anything. Even plans with friends, we're like, oh, well, you know, just let me get back to you in a few days just in case a better offer comes up. You know, like, we just don't commit. And obedience, isn't that just the thing we do with our dogs when they're little? Like, I'm an independent and strong human being. I just want to do what I want to do, thank you very much. And yet, we are told that this is part of what it means for us to follow Jesus, is to commit ourselves to him in the same way that he has committed himself to us. And to follow his way. His way of walking out through life. It's always been countercultural and it is always challenging. Anyone who tells you that following Jesus is just for the weak ones is just not true. It takes tremendous courage to follow the Lord. It takes some sacrifice. It takes some challenge of working through some of the different things that come up for us. Being the people of God has always had a cost to it. Let's go back to Nehemiah. So the people have had this moment of like collective repentance and confession and then responding in worship. And what they decide that they want to do is to renew them, their covenant, their commitment with God. Now a covenant is language we don't tend to use. We would think of it more like a contract, a binding agreement between two parties and God and the people of Israel were the two parties in this covenant. And the, the people actually wanted a written version of this and they signed it. Their leaders and priests signed it on their behalf and they promised in verse 29 to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord. There's this heartfelt all in, I'm, you know, I'm taking this seriously as an individual and as a people. This is who we are and this is what we're going to do. And the covenant that they uh, describe they, in chapter 10 is that, that how they're going to actually reorient their way of life to make their faith in God, their relationship with Him, a lived reality through practical application, which is a really helpful reminder for us, I think. It's just that our faith is something to be worked out. It's something to be lived. It's not just a bunch of ideas that we go, mm, yes, they're good ideas but we just do life how we want. Or that we just, you know, we kind of have that moment of heartfelt, yes, and then we just carry on as though nothing's changed. Following Jesus is going to mean, and being in relationship with God is going to mean that our, the way that we live is going to change. And for the people of Israel, some of the things that they were committing themselves to were things like, we are not going to marry other people where we don't share the same faith. They made a commitment to observe the Sabbath and holy days and to not do any trade. It was going to affect the way that they would handle their money, their power, uh, how they called in debts with one another. You know, money, power, rest, trust. 
So they were making deliberate choices. And then the other thing they were choosing was to make the temple the centerpiece of their identity and of their community. Now, remember that for them, this is pre-Jesus' coming. It's pre the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So the temple was the place to meet with God. And they were going to put the temple within the way that they were going to organize the rhythms of their life, the way that they were going to use their resources to support the ongoing work and life of the temple was going to be central for them as a people. Here's a quick summary of these chapters from Tim Mackey, uh, who is one of the writers at the Bible Project. In Nehemiah 8 to 10, the walls of, the, of Jerusalem are dedicated with great fanfare. There are choirs, a marching band, the whole bit. They rally Israelites from all ages to hear the scriptures read aloud. It's a seven-day Bible marathon. And the people are so moved that they commit themselves to follow the terms of the Torah all over again. The, pe- the temple won't be abused by power politics anymore. And people will devote themselves to observing the commands of the Torah. Now, Nehemiah is not being offered as a model of successful leadership. Rather, his experience is telling the truth about the human condition. Apparently, the disaster of exile did not accomplish the transformation of the human heart. Even grave consequences didn't bring about the deep level of healing required to change the human disposition. Israel's problem before the exile was a hard heart that resulted in rebellion against the terms of their covenant with God because they had signed covenants with God along these lines before. And Israel's problem after the exile, well, it's exactly the same. What this tells us is that even though the Israelites are back in their ancestral land, they are still in exile, spiritually speaking. Later in the story, Jesus knew that what God's covenant people truly needed wasn't just a new temple building or a new city wall. They needed new hearts that could truly respond to God's love and grace with grateful devotion. We are just as much in need of new hearts ourselves. We need to have that revived in us. Revival, I have found a a lovely... uh, Definition of that from Robert Coleman, who is an American evangelist and professor and author. He says this, and he's lived through multiple revivals. Being alive to God and the awake, this is what revival is, being awake to God and the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. This is what we saw happening in Nehemiah, and it's what we still see happening today. God is in the process of reviving people all the time, every day. And let's be really careful that we don't miss that just because we're thinking it should look like something else or devalue it because it's incremental and slow and piece by piece because that's what we've just read about in Nehemiah. Some of that happens. However, there are these moments in history where God does this sovereign work of pouring his spirit out upon people in a spontaneous, unexpected way So it's a big group of people, and it's often for a prolonged period of time. We had the uh, privilege of being uh, exposed to some of the stuff that was happening with what has become known as the Toronto Blessing back in the 90s, 
where God was pouring his spirit out upon the church in a particular church in Toronto and Canada, but it spread all over the world. And it renewed and revived people's passion for God and stirred their hearts for their faith. And it spilled out of the church and into communities where we were able to take the good news of Jesus to people in in new and fresh and empowered ways. But not all of us have gotten to experience some of those things. Oftentimes when people talk about revival, that's what they're talking about, is that kind of a moment in history. And there have been many all over the world throughout the history of the church. And often it starts with the people of God and then it spreads out into communities and cities and countries and around the world. And it seems that this year we are seeing some of that happening in different places. And I just wanted to draw your attention to some of that. I wasn't actually going to go in this direction when I started my message, but this is where God seemed to lead me. So this is what we're going to lean into. Uh, In a place called Asbury, uh, or university in Asbury, in February earlier this year, uh, there was a chapel service at the university. It's a compulsory uh, chapel service three times a week for the students there. It's just a small town uh, called Wilmore, Kentucky. There's about 6,000 people that live there. There's about 1,500 students. It's like it's, it's a college town, a university town. And uh, so students went to their compulsory chapel service. You can imagine the enthusiasm when it's a compulsory kind of a deal. I've listened to some of their stories, and that is, I'm not making that up. They're like... Oh, so we were at chapel, because we have to be. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is Asbury's actually experienced, this is the third outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's happened there. Once was in 1950, once was in 1970, and then again this year. And what happened is, is that as that chapel service finished, a number of the students felt compelled to stay behind. And that triggered off a 24-7 prayer and worship meeting that happened nonstop for the next two weeks. And over that period of two weeks, there was something between 50 and 70,000 people descended on that small town, hungry for the Lord and what he was doing there. To the point that they couldn't feed them and they couldn't house them. They had people coming from all around the world. Apparently over 200 academic institutions were represented and students that came. But people came from all over. And so I wanted to show you, and it's an eight-minute clip, but it's people talking about their experience of what happened there for us to be able to catch a hold of some of that for ourselves. And so as we listen, can I invite you to, to just notice the parts of the story that seem to stand out for you? It might be a comment somebody says, it might be something you see, and trust that God is actually meeting you today where you are through what he was doing there. So why don't we watch that together? with a friend and we were standing in the doorway and I turned to him and I said I don't know what they have but whatever it is I want this our world is dark and our students are hurting and they're they're lonely they're angry they're desperate and so they've been praying for change and we've had a lot of great moments on our campus great chapel services great speakers great intentionality great prayer meetings And I think after the service on this just regular chapel day, God just started working in their hearts and he's been working in their hearts, but they were obedient to it. You know, when you think about how did this start, um, it was nothing anybody did. It was nothing Asbury did. It was nothing that Zach Meercreeps did. It was nothing that any student did. Um, You know, I believe that it was just a 
like a pure and a deep cry for more of God's spirit that these students had, and look where it's gotten us. And so we have people from all over the world now. I was one of the people who stayed um, immediately after the chapel service, so we had kind of a soft ending. Um, we said people are allowed to continue to worship, um, but I just, I just continue to sit in my seat and pray and just reflect on who God was. Um, went to my 12 o'clock class, and then when I got out of class, I heard the singing, and I said, okay, that's, that's weird, why is this still continuing? Um, so I went back up, and it, it was surreal. The peace that was in the room um, was unexplainable, and a couple buddies and I just went to run around to the different classrooms and barged in on classes and said, revival's happening. There's been a ton of healing from church hurt and from various traumatic events. There's physical healings, there's been calls that cancer's gone, but then beyond that, something that's, like, I think extremely incredible is, I know this campus very well, it's small, we're less about, I guess, at a thousand students, and I know exactly which people on this campus hate each other, and those are the people that I have seen praying together, singing together, hugging, crying. Like, I myself have had a list of least favorite people at this school, and I have spent the week with them, and it's been, like, totally life-changing. For some, it is freedom for the first time, freedom from anxiety, freedom from uh, desperation, maybe. Uh, for some, it's freedom from addiction or whatever that may be. And for others, it might be a first-time commitment or really a first-time understanding of who God truly is. I mean, for some, they're just praying for their families that addiction would be broken in the lives of their family members. So it is however the Lord is working in their individual hearts. God has a plan of redemption for our world, but God works in the lives of people and He can bring healing and He can bring peace in the, in the midst of really challenging and difficult things. He's reaching out to a lost and broken people and He's inviting them into His presence and into His peace and into His love and community here on campus and people just can't get enough of it. I feel like the first couple of days I've just felt so much joy. Like, when I'm singing, I just can't help but like, like my mouth hurts, my jaw hurts. I'm just smiling ear to ear um, and just being filled with so much joy. And I've never really liked praying out loud in front of people, but I just felt so like bold in that, like to pray for people and allowing God to use me just to speak through me to people for what they need to hear. I used to have a really big shame about prayer. I used to, um, I never used to want to pray near people, pray out loud. Um, I had a big shame about how I sounded when I prayed. I thought I had to sound like this perfect pastor with these poetic words. That rooted itself in me at a young age. And uh, Jesus like just broke that shame of how I felt and like, and how I had put my personal image above what Jesus says about me and Jesus says that I'm his son and I'm beloved and that my purpose in this life is to just love him and to praise him. People have been reminded about the goodness of God and that his presence is special, that it's holy. And I think a lot of the transformation has been refocusing on Jesus. And some people have gotten healed and some people have come to Christ which are things we celebrate, but I think a lot of the times we are just so caught up in our schedules that we forget that God is always moving, and I think He's starting to intervene here. I really think that this is just a, uh, 
my generation and all generations just crying out for truth um, in a world that teaches relative truth and that there is no truth. There is absolutely truth. He is truth, truth. there is truth in His Word, and He's, he's answering our prayers. This isn't just going to end and everything's going to go back to normal. Like This is changing our culture, this is changing our society, this is changing our world. The Holy Spirit's here and it's incredible of what we're all learning. And our younger generation, I'm only 18 years old, and I feel like that this opportunity now has created a way of the type of man that I want to be and the type of person that I want to contribute to society. And I feel like that's what's happening, that we're, we're learning all these good lessons and bonding so much with the Holy Spirit that it, this is creating a new wave of all young people that are going to impact our country and the world. You can experience revival in, in any place. It doesn't have to be in a chapel. It doesn't have to be you know, in church. It's something that you can experience every day in your life. The Holy Spirit is not contained to one place. It's not fake. It's something that's real. And it's truly why we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't truly understand it until you actually come and taste and see for yourself. I mean, I've seen like people be healed this week. I've never thought I'd ever see that in my life. Like, we're not worshiping the healing. Like, that's great. And if God chooses to heal, that's amazing. And it's beautiful and wonderful. But we're worshiping the one who does heal. I mean, there's going to be commissioned services where we say, thank you for coming. I'm so glad you experienced and encountered the Holy Spirit. Now go to your family, go to your school, go to your church, go to your community, and tell them about it and pray for them and it's gonna happen there too. So while it will fizzle at Asbury, because it simply must at some point, uh, I think that it will be global for a very, very long time. good is that? You're all really quiet. In the inside, man, I'm like, whoa, yes, I want that. Anybody? Yeah. yeah, this is a good thing. And the beautiful thing is they did. They stopped after two weeks. They sent everybody home with that commission. Take what you've been given and give it away. Wherever you are, wherever God has put you. Robert Coleman, who used to lecture at this university, who was there for the 1950, 1970 and 2023 outpouring of the Holy Spirit, says this. Uh, in terms of how do we, uh, this was in a, a an article in the Washington Post when they were trying to figure out what is going on over there and they asked him, what do Christians do next uh, to be able to continue this work of revival? And he says this, follow me, Jesus said. Isn't that simple? We can all understand it. You don't have to go to a big university to know how to make disciples. You just follow Jesus. Don't look for a crowd. Begin with the person next to you, who's next door or who you work beside. Make a friend and continue to develop that friendship. That's how we make disciples, by being together. Put your arm around them, love them, show them that you care for their soul. And I would say that we are not just wanting to make disciples, we are wanting to be disciples. That God would start with us, that he would do this in us. And it is usually, revival is usually small and slow and incremental. And that is what most of us experience most of the time. But we are hearing stories of him doing beautiful things, of spontaneous things, of where God is just meeting with his people 
Like we're hearing stuff about services that are happening in the UK and in Australia and the States. And even here, we're experiencing people coming to faith or coming to church for the first time. And some of them have been invited, but some of them are just coming. Because God is up to something. He is on the move. I know that many of us have been praying in the last few weeks for Brad Heath, and I believe he's here somewhere. Hey, so good to have you here. Brad developed sepsis uh, a number of weeks ago and and was really gravely ill. Uh, and in hospital, and immediately, as well as people wrapping around their family to love them, you know, and do food and cleaning and things like that, people have been praying, and he is now out of hospital and at church. So good to have you here, Brad. God is still answering the prayers of his people. So for today, what is it that you're coming longing for? What is it that you heard on that video that captured your heart? You know, like that girl right at the very beginning that says, I don't know what they've got, but I want it. I don't know what they've got, but I want it. That longing that can stir within us for more of God or to experience Him for the first time. It may be that we are somewhere on that roadmap to revival. We may be in the process of returning or rebuilding or repenting. Or we may be feeling that we are being revived, being renewed. Am I becoming more of a disciple of Jesus? Are there people that God has put in my life that I can actually help to disciple? These are things for all of us to consider as we sit and rest and reflect on what God is still up to as just as he was at the time of Nehemiah. A young guy called Josh Green from 24-7 Prayer, he said this, the words I often find myself coming back to are simple. God is on the move. But why now? And why in this generation? Well, the obvious answer is because we so desperately need it. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day and be blessed.